All right, kindergarten through second grade can be dismissed at this time, uh, and they'll be coming back in for communion as, as uh, Philip shared with you all. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, uh, we'll be in verses four through nine. Just want to remind you of a couple things. We are uh, reading poetry here, and this is called The Fourth Suffering Servant Song. It's one long poem in five stanzas. Um, and so we want to make sure that we appreciate the beauty of its construction and what it's trying to communicate to us. And so, uh, unfortunately, when you break it up into parts, you can kind of forget what has come before. Um, I'll touch on that again here in just a second. But, but what is, what's being got at here in this particular, these uh, stanzas three and four, is that Jesus chose, and I think that's a really important thing for you to wrap your mind around that Jesus chose to suffer and die undeservedly. That's, that's really important too. Jesus did not deserve to die because what are the wages of sin? I'm sorry, there's gotta be at least four Christians in here just by law of averages in the South. What are the wages of sin? And was he guilty? No, he was a sinless savior. In fact, we know he's not guilty, why? Because he rose again. Susan may be the best Christian in here. Just five words. No, that's not true. I know her. I know her too well. Um, and so he rose, and that's what we celebrate this season. We're not celebrating purely his death. It's not just the gruesomeness and the grisliness and all those things. While there should be gravity because of what happened on that Friday, which we paradoxically call good because of what was the result of that, not what happened to Christ wasn't good. And as we'll see some of the description here from Isaiah, um, it was not just metaphorical. He genuinely suffered. That's one of the reasons we read Psalm 22, which is what he cried from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you remember, we made it to another part in that Psalm where it says, yet, yet, I know who you are and who I am and why this is happening. And so may they remember from me quoting Psalm 22, may they have hope that I will rise. And you have to understand that, that him saying, my God, my God, was the beginning of the psalm and the psalm is resolved as he rises from the grave. It's the word made flesh, amen? And so Jesus chose, that's important, to suffer and die undeservedly, that's important, so that we, we would have the eternal peace and healing, and this is really important, that we don't deserve. We just don't. We're not good people at heart, after all. Uh, we are utterly inconsistent in the views that we hold. I have yet to meet anyone who's completely consistent in their worldview all the way down. I've yet to meet a Christian who's utterly consistent in living out the Bible completely and utterly. I've yet to meet anybody who was perfect. And maybe that's because I have friends in low places. Maybe so. Uh, but uh, I've been in some high places too. And those folks were just as bad as the rest of them. Uh, and so we don't deserve it. And I don't say that as a matter of worm theology so please don't hear me say that. You bear the image of God. If you are here this morning and you don't proclaim Christ as Savior, you still have value because there is breath in your lungs because God said it would be so. And so you still bear the image, but in order for you to appreciate the fullness of that image, you must be in union with Christ. You must taste and see that the Lord is good through his redemption through Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, in faith alone. And so Jesus chose to suffer and die undeservedly so that we would have the eternal peace and healing that we don't deserve. And that is good news, is it not? And yet, is this a question that you've wrestled with? How do you feel about people getting things they don't deserve? Like punishment, right? Who in here, show of hands, has ever uttered these words, and I don't care how old you were, that's not fair. Every hand in here, right? We've all uttered it at some point in time. For those of you who are Auburn fans, <laughs> as a Carolina fan, it's fine. 
whatever. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so we've all uttered, that's not fair. Either because somebody got something they didn't deserve, right? This is in the headlines every single day. Or because they got something we think they don't deserve. Why in the world's that guy getting to drive that car, live in that house, or have that job? Or why do they get to have such well-behaved children? No one in here has ever uttered those words, right? Why, why, do they, why do they get to have a building? And we're meeting in this palace with its beautiful parquet dance floor and its lovely accoutrements that call for worship of loudest praise. Uh, we all sometimes struggle with whether or not something is in fact fair, presuming we understand what balances the scales, you see, which is a pretty big presumption and fairly arrogant in its declaration because of our own limitedness and our inability to be unconditional. We claim to be unconditional until our enemies show up. Or that family member that always ruins Christmas. Or that family member that always ruins Thanksgiving with their dry turkey. I don't know of anybody like that. Uh, and so I... I want us to first confess that this is going to be a hard passage for us because of what it's actually saying, because we struggle with what's fair. We don't have a right view of ourselves. We just don't. And that actually may be grace. Because if you could behold the fullness of your sin, you probably, the, the depths of your own darkness, you probably would have to be locked up somewhere. And so God in his grace doesn't let you see it all. Just as we can't behold the fullness of his glory without Christ, we can't behold the fullness of our sin without Christ. It would destroy us. Praise be to God, he doesn't let us see it all. But we often see enough to recognize who we really are apart from Jesus. And sometimes even with Jesus, we struggle, don't we? And so this issue of fairness is going to be turned on its head. And in fact, if you remember from Isaiah 52, there was all that glorious description of come awake, come awake. A glorious garment has been laid out for you. Rise from the dust of the ashes of death and be seated at the royal table because beautiful are the feet of those who come and preach the gospel to you. You have been welcomed into the family. And then remember that hymn that Isaiah wrote in the other part of 52 where a song breaks out like some sort of weird Coca-Cola commercial and it just keeps going on and on and on and even creation joins in the chorus, right? And then it takes this weird turn with the opening stanza of the poem and all that royalty, this king who is coming, who's gonna do all that for you, you won't even look him in the eye. You wouldn't even notice him if you were passing by him because he has been so utterly dehumanized. Not just that you despise him with an act of hatred, but you disdain him with a lukewarm banality. He's not even worth a casual glance. So that's critical to the setting of what we're going to read in the next two stanzas. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of the first stanza, or the third stanza in the poem, the first stanza this morning. This is verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, we have esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So here's what's really important about this as we step into this particular stanza is that we recognize that Jesus, who is sent as king, who is utterly disdained before he even does anything for us. Notice, we casually disregarded him in his life. No one, all the healings, all of the good that he did in the three years of his earthly ministry, and he did a lot of good. In fact, so much so that John says, there's not enough paper in all the world to write down all of the things that he actually did which ought to make us recognize that we have seen but such a small portion of who Christ is, just the part they chose to record. There's a whole bunch of stuff that John and them saw that we aren't privy to. Maybe it'll be part of why it takes an eternity to appreciate this whole story. Maybe we'll get to see some more of that. But Jesus does all this good. And remember the heart of the Pharisees. When they come to him and they say, yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Woman with a flow of blood for 14 years. Cute. Little girl uh, rose from the dead. I, I get it. That's cool. Lazarus. Uh, it's all right. Yeah. Guy who couldn't walk. His friends have to cut out the ceiling, lower him down. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but can, you, can you just give us something more? Can you... Can you do a little more, like, like something we can, we can appreciate? And he says, you wicked generation of Jonah, no sign will be given to you. They've all been given. So if they, like us, are utterly unimpressed with Jesus, the wonder-working sideshow, why would he choose to die for us? Let's sit for a moment. We are. We're, we're unimpressed with his life. Let's be honest. How do we come into worship most of the time? Which is where we talk about the person and work of Christ a lot. We're like, meh, I've heard it. It's fine. I mean, do something now, right? Do something now. Show me something good now. I mean, it's great that you did all that stuff in the past, but I, I'm going to need a little something of substance. If you... If you're going to recruit <laughs> this free agent uh, who's got some awesome gifts and abilities and really will be an asset to the church if I buy into the whole thing, right? Then you need to do something to impress me. You need to, you need to give me something. Because I ain't cheap and I ain't free. And Jesus, with great patience and long-suffering, just as the attributes of God are, since he is God in the flesh, forgiving, steadfast in his love, steadfast in his faithfulness, smiles all the while. It says, I'll be here. I'll be right where I've always been, at the right hand of the Father, seated on your behalf. You know where to find me. And I'll show up every week when you gather together, hearts hardened, Minds foggy, tired, really not wanting to be here and listen to some monologue from some guy who sounds like he's been snorting pollen uh, and, and, you know, that whole thing, which I, kind of, I was, but not in the way you think. Uh, and so, uh, just breathing it in. And so, so we, we are nonplussed with this whole display, right? We just are. It's okay to admit it because Jesus died for you when you were nonplussed with everything else. And so he covers even this, you see. And he did this knowing still that we would be not entertained by him hardly at all and we would find him perfectly banal. Notice how we respond. Well, listen at the beauty of the poetry. Listen at where Isaiah begins. Surely, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely that's what he's done. Notice how we respond. You ready? Yet. Now what does that mean? For those of you who know anything about the English language, which there ought to be a few of you in here, 
Is that, is that in agreement or opposition with what just came before? It's in opposition. There's a but there. Hey, yeah, yeah, he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Fine. Whatever. Right? That would be the Cameron's message translation. He was esteemed, stricken, and smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, you need to understand what's being said here. We sometimes read into that kind of the theological, like, like yeah, he's wounded for our trans. Oh, this is so good. No, what Isaiah is saying here is we basically said, yeah, and he deserved it. He deserved it. He was a thief. That's why we read what we read from Pilate in John 19. When they cry, crucify him. I love how deep the Father's love because I can hear my mocking voice cry out the same thing and yours is in the same chorus as well, which is interesting in light of the chorus we ought be singing from Isaiah 52. And yet, he's done all this for us. And we, again, we're not entertained. He's, yeah, God, God did that to him. That's, that's between them. That's a father-son issue. That's cosmic child abuse. I don't want no part of it. I don't care. Is essentially what's being said here. But notice how it goes on. But, now what does that mean? How does the but relate to the yet statement? It means that it's in opposition to that. Even though we said, essentially, whatever, I don't care. But... He was wounded for our transgressions. Even though we said he probably deserved it, I don't really care if he did or he didn't. He's got no, no cause with me. That's his business. That's their business. He yet was wounded for our transgressions, the things that we have done, the things that we are deserving of death for. He was wounded for our transgressions, and it goes even further. Listen to the poetic language. He was crushed for our iniquities. Have you ever been crushed? I know there's some of you in here who've been in a place where I've been, where it felt like, and I know many of you know this moment well, when something gets said, words get spoken that can't be taken back, and you feel as if the floor is falling out from underneath you and nothing is ever going to be the same again. There was a before, and now you are in the after. That's but maybe one one billionth of what it feels like for Christ to be crushed for the totality of our sins not just us here at Christ Community Church this morning, but the totality of God's people throughout history, past, present, and future, fall on him in toto, satisfying God's wrath. He did that for a people who were utterly unimpressed with him. Us. And we, oftentimes... Myself included, I confess this to you with grief. I'm just not that impressed with Jesus some days. Which means I don't really understand who I am, right? I don't really have a good handle on how really broken and sorry I am in some part. And I don't understand the value that I carry as an image bearer. It is both and. I am missing both ends of the spectrum. Because Christ died so that I would not live a life of banality and boredom, but be invited into the work of the kingdom, the kingdom that goes on eternally. And that my life, the things that I do, even the quotidian everyday things, would have meaning and not be meaningless. We were talking about this in the leadership cultivation course a little bit. And I love the imagery in Revelation 19 which we'll get to next Easter season, by the way. We're going to do Revelation for Christmas and Easter, so you may want to stay a Christian for that. It's going to be interesting. And so, and so uh, in Revelation 19, 
the marriage supper of the lamb, they're hanging out at this giant feast, right? Best food you've ever eaten in your life. And they're watching the bride come forward or come down. And she is clothed in the righteousness of who? Randolph, where you at? The saints, plural. And here's how I imagine that going. So I'm, I'm going extra biblical for a second. So don't quote me on this. Don't, don't, don't write a book about this just yet. I've got to patent it and make sure it's okay. But, but I suspect that we will point not in arrogance and say, ah, oh, <laughs> I knew that was going to clothe her and beautify her. I knew when I was doing it that I was going to see this again. No, I think it's going to be like this. That made it? You mean that in Christ's ability to transform how I treated my son on that day in the basement when I was so angry at what he had said to his mother, you mean somehow he transformed that into reconciliation? Do you mean for one second that my hatred for my neighbor for all those years that I struggled with and wrestled with, and it was never pretty. But somehow they saw something, that they're at the table without me hitting them with the F-A-I-T-H outline. Wow. You mean to tell me that all of that struggle in my marriage for all those years when it felt like I was hanging on for dear life, and it didn't feel like life more abundant to me, it didn't feel like spirit-filled living. And yet, because the covenant was kept in honor of the Lord, that beautified this bride. So Jesus turns everything upside down in the way that we understand redemption and reconciliation and truly how radical it all is. We would miss that in this poem if we weren't paying close attention. That this Jesus who we disregarded in life and who we will disregard in death, and oh, by the way, we will disregard in his burial, we'll see that in just a moment in the fourth stanza, and we will disregard in his resurrection. By and large, most days we are not regarding the king of this universe. We're regarding something far far lesser. And yet, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. Listen to me. That brought us peace. What kind of peace? When, we, when the Bible uses peace, it ain't, you get to go live in a place in the woods and in a cave somewhere and nobody bothers you for 30 years, right? That's not, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the restoration, the reconciliation of all things. You've heard the term shalom, I'm sure. So peace for us, it, we, we're dismissive of even that term. We don't go far enough in demanding it. And, and saying, I will not rest until there is reconciliation in this family. I will not rest until there is reconciliation in the spheres of influence that I see. I will take up the means of grace to fight in the only way that matters, which is in the spiritual realm, but manifested in the physical realm. And I know this, on the days when I've got no fight in me, God is so gracious that the spirit groans on even my behalf, the one who has no punch left to throw, except to throw the towel in. And so, it is so that we would have peace and with his stripes, we are healed. 
There's no, you, there ain't nobody getting out of this world without scars. I don't care who you are. Nothing gets out undinged, scratched, used up a little bit, beat up a whole lot. Everybody needs healing. Everybody. And some of you may say, I've been praying for healing. And the heavens are brass. Well, but do you trust that the Lord God who is steadfast in his faithfulness and his love, for whatever reason he tarries to answer the prayer in the way that you would like, that maybe there's some aspect of sanctification that is not yet done. We've talked about this before. We want to be. We don't want to become. We don't want to go through the process. And in fact, we'll, we'll bargain a little bit. Okay, okay, all right. I, I, if I'm not going to be, then I want to dictate my becoming. LeBron James gets to do it with the Lakers, right? I want to decide who I play with. I want to decide how much money I make. I want to decide what my shoes are worth. As if that would hold forever. And if we actually had enough knowledge to know what was best for ourselves, the difference in that exchange between LeBron James and the brass at the Los Angeles Lakers is they're two humans who are fallible, engaging in contract discussions. We are dealing with an omnipotent, sovereign, holy God who knows the begin from the end and does not change. There is no contract negotiation, and that is for our best interest because what we would bargain for is far, far, far too little. So God, in his grace sends a king who looks nothing like what we would call a king, who looks nothing like what we would call a savior with a sword in his fists. This ain't what we bargain for. This ain't cultural victory. And yet, he dies. He's crushed. He's wounded so that we would have peace and be healed. And just in case we're slightly confused, Isaiah chooses to pivot and grab a little piece of Psalm 14 and stick it in here. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. Every one to his own way. Who, who in here has not turned to their own way? who is not when confronted with some aspect of the gospel, when someone comes to you and says, hey, how's that biblical? And you're like, yeah, but. Again, that but has a lot of weight to it. It carries an awful lot of psychic, religious, spiritual weight, does it not? Yeah, but I'm in a tough circumstance, right? I just got to get through this year. I just got to get through this circumstance. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Yes. Actually, he does, but not in the limited, silly way in which we've come up with, but in the eternal peace, reconciled, redeemed, truly and completely healed way that only he knows. And so, though we have all gone astray, notice what it says. And yet, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Despite all that we have done and all that we dismiss and how little we care about any of this stuff, Jesus still remains crucified, resurrected, seated, and coming again. He still remains finished in his redemptive work. It still remains applied to those of us who are bored with it all. In the hopes that we would be stirred to worship. We are interestingly very moved in, in stories when someone sacrifices themselves for the greater good, are we not? I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop the dime I know nothing about. Harry Potter, anyone? 
right? Everybody gets so, oh my gosh, it's so Christ-like when Harry does that thing, you know, whatever. Or the Matrix even. We, we, we went over backwards trying to figure out how to use the Matrix as a gospel vehicle as if the story of Christ wasn't sufficient enough. Now, let me pause here for those of you who are Love using, use cultural vehicles, please. But you've got to get to the real story at some point because the cultural vehicle stops too far short, does it not? But we are utterly enamored with self-sacrifice. Every show seems to have it at some point. And we are always so moved by it, even in the worst of characters. But Jesus does it in history, in reality, and our response is, man, yeah, it's because he had to. No, 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 no. Remember, he chose to love you. Now, how do I know that? Well, Hebrews 12, one and two tells us very specifically that for the joy that was set before him, Christ chose to endure the shame of the cross. He chose to endure the shame of the cross because he knew what it would accomplish in God's people. I don't know how all the math works out. I'm far too limited for all that. And that's a decent confession. And some days I actually believe it. Some days I think I, I, think I can figure some of this stuff out. I get pretty full of myself. I know that's hard for you to believe. And so what we have is a savior who says to his father, like Isaiah said, send me. Send me. I don't know how it all worked out in the council of the Trinity. We don't have access to that. But what we know is the result. And what's interesting is how the gospel of John so often, this is one of the reasons why we're using it for our assurances of pardon, how many times John says, behold, he's trying to get people to see. Notice, even Pilate did it. Remember? As he trots Jesus out, he says, okay, behold the man. Did he know what he was confessing? Remember in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, behold, it's me. What'd they do? They all fell down. And Jesus was like, okay, get up. I'm the guy, okay? Rest me. We gotta do this thing. Right? Over and over and over again, Scripture calls us to behold what we cannot see or hear with the natural eye or ear. We have to confess that God's ways, they're not our ways. They're just not. And if it makes sense to us in full, then something is probably off, right? If the math just works out too easy for us, because the way he does what he does doesn't make sense at all to us. You mean you would want to spend time with people who don't want to even look at you? How many of you, that's your dinner party, like, hey, I'm gonna invite probably like five or six people who hate looking at me and they hate looking at each other and it's gonna be a four hour, like five course. It's gonna be a horrible. <laughs> that's not what we do. But that's what Jesus did. He invited a whole bunch of people to a party that they wanted nothing to do with, with a host so gracious, so lavish, they wanted nothing from in a spirit that they don't want to mention lest he get loose and cause us to do some crazy stuff like untuck our shirts or something, right? Listen to how John Calvin speaks of this part of the text. He says, <coughs> here we have a beautiful contrast. In ourselves, we are scattered. In Christ, we are gathered together. By nature, we go astray and are driven headlong to destruction. 
In Christ, we find the course by which we are conducted to the harbor of salvation. Our sins are a heavy load, but they are laid on Christ by whom we are freed from this load. Thus, when we were ruined and being estranged from God, were hastening to hell, Christ took upon him the filthiness of our iniquities in order to rescue us from everlasting destruction. This must refer exclusively to guilt and punishment, for he was free from sin. Let every one, therefore, diligently consider his own iniquities that he may have a true relish of that grace and may obtain the benefit of the death of Christ. So my question, which is something you're probably gonna have to chew on, this is not one you can just answer straight away, it's a good meditative question for this Lord's Day Sabbath and even days ahead. What are some ways in which you've experienced Christ specifically bearing these things for you? Grief, carrying your sorrow, and being wounded, all that you would have peace and healing in him. Now remember, you may say, well, wait a minute, I'm still hurting, dude. I'm still, I'm still, I've still got some sorrow. Remember, it's not over yet. And also remember that you're not carrying the full weight of it no matter what you do. The part you carry is to help train you and build you up so that, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, we would go and be of comfort to others. It is not purposeless. It is not meaningless. It is not without grace. If you would turn back to the text and let's see what the fourth stanza has to offer to us in that Christ's death is truly undeserved and our exalted life is undeserved. Verse seven, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before us, its shearers is silent, is, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, the language of the poetry here is to indicate that Christ is a sacrifice, that his death is for atonement, but not that would have to be performed over and over and over again, but once for all. It would be effectual. It would be finished. And notice how Isaiah says, he didn't say anything. He didn't fight back. He didn't cry. This isn't fair. I am powerful, Lord. Look, I spoke. These men fell to the ground. I got guys that will cut ears off of priests' servants, right? We can roll. We can wreck shop. We can make folks know that you are God. But that's not how he does it. He doesn't even open his mouth. He receives it. Notice when Pilate's asking those questions, you don't think he couldn't have wrapped Pilate around the axle and gotten out of that thing? What did Pilate want to do? He wanted to let him go because he knew something wasn't right. If you remember in the other gospels, his wife comes to him and is like, hey, I've had some crazy dream and leave this dude alone. This ain't going to end well for any of us. He's like, get out of here. Wait, yeah, get out of here. And politics ruled the day. And yet, and yet, even though they cried for him to be crucified, he cried for them to be redeemed. When he does open his mouth, it is to say, you are mine. But not all the while the suffering is going down. And notice what Isaiah says. Who even thought about this? Who's even given this a second's worth of thought? That's the question Isaiah is posing to us, you see. All the questions I ask you, they fall far short of the question that Isaiah is asking us in this text, and let's consider it again. He says, 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Have you even thought about it? Have you even thought about what was accomplished and all that has been applied? Have you given it a moment's notice that a man who didn't deserve to die did so that you could live a life you don't deserve to live? Knowing my own sin, I am so frequently overwhelmed that the Lord shows me any grace at all. I mean, in fact, during the song uh, that we sang for the offering, the part where it says, though my, my sins, they rise to meet me. Man, I don't want to see that. I don't want to know all that transgressed. I, I, I don't want to do that. That's not a counseling session. And yet I love what it says. Though they fall in the merits of him who rises also to meet us. That though they tell us you don't belong here. Jesus steps even further forward and says, oh no, but you do. Through no merit of your own, through no deservedness of your own, you belong here because of what I have done for you and I have accomplished and applied to you though you wouldn't even think about it for a second left to your own devices. It requires truly the spirit to prick our hearts, to move us, to draw us to him, sometimes kicking and screaming. And notice how he comes, as Mark 10 and other places in the gospel describe him, he comes as the servant of all. He says, the son of man came not to be served. What king says that? King Jesus. Son of man came not to be served, but to be the servant of all. Now, if you know the passage that that comes from, there's some kind of troubling things that are said before that because he actually says that we too are supposed to have that same mindset since we are emissaries of the king, that we too are not to serve or lord things over as the Gentiles do. In fact, the context is there's two of the disciples that are like, hey, in fact, they're too scared to go talk to Jesus. They go get their mom because they play video games in her basement all the time, apparently. Like first century video games, it was different. It was weird. It's kind of ColecoVision-esque with crayons on a wall. And so, and so they, they're like, hey, mom, go see if we could be cool. And so mom rolls up on Jesus like, hey, how about the right and the left hand for these, these good-looking boys right here? And Jesus is like, I love you too much to let that happen, actually, because you don't know what you're asking. To sit at my right hand and left hand would be so, so costly to these men that there would be nothing left to sit. But let me tell you how you do have meaning and purpose. You too serve as I have served you. You too have the same mindset that you, you're not here to be served. Think about how, just how we approach church alone, right? How much of church is us wanting our needs to be served, right? All the things that we want at the end of the service, oftentimes we go to lunch, we talk about all the things that we didn't get right. Or we, we talk about all the things that, that we don't have and how unpleased we are with it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to spill tea, that's all of us. But instead, what we should ask is, Lord, were you, were you pleased? Well, here's how you know he was. You wanna know? And don't not ask the question, still answer it. You showed up in all of the condition in which you are here, in all of the limitedness and brokenness and nonplusness and unimpressedness, you showed up. And the Lord was pleased that you at least, you at least gave it some measure of a hearing. And so, May we learn 
from our Savior how to become servants, emissaries of this servant king, this suffering servant who came that we would have life and life more abundant, who died so that we would have peace and be healed even though, even though we, we couldn't care less most days. And I know that for some of you, you're like, man, that's, that, don't sound, that don't sound right. Yeah, I know. Because his ways are not our ways. I get it. I wouldn't do it for you either. Romans 5 makes it real clear. Scarcely would anybody die for someone that they like. Scarcely. But to die for people you hate? Or people that hate you? Who does that? Jesus does. The second Adam who completed what humanity could never complete given an entire eternity to try. Listen to what J. Alec Motier, Old Testament scholar, says about this passage. He says, The servant is not an expedient which we hopefully proposed. So what he just said is, this isn't our idea. Is it? Nobody, all, all the religions we've come up with in history, if you take a survey of religions course, and you may say, well, what about that Mithra dude who gets killed, he rises from the dead, you know, in the Indian thing? Well, but nothing like this. Even though there are some parallels, none of them ever achieve suffering servant status. It is all self-serving. And humanity oftentimes is there at the behest of the gods, plural. We're just kind of caught in the middle. No one comes after us unless they're angry. This Jesus comes as the suffering servant of all, not in anger at us, in anger at death, which is why he bellows at the tomb of Lazarus. And why he cries from the cross when he cries. Because even a moment's separation from his father is crushing agony. And so this Jesus is nothing of human imagination or invention. Nor one moved only by personal compassion and voluntariness. He is the provision of God. While Jesus chose, he chose as the one provided by God singularly. There was no other way. There was no plan B. Hebrews tells us this in those two troubling passages, right? Hebrews 6, would you crucify Christ again to an open shame? Hebrews 10, would you trample underfoot the blood of Christ? And in both cases, essentially, the author of Hebrews is saying, well, if that's how you're going to treat him, you're in trouble because there's no better Superman coming. There's no greater Savior who can save you from that. Best you turn to him as your high priest and receive his gift of grace to you while he may be found. And so... He is the provision of God who himself superintends the priestly task of transferring the guilt of the guilty to the head of the servant, giving notice that this is indeed his considered and accepted, accepted satisfaction for sin. That means that God was pleased. Oh, I don't know how to get my head around that. Except that he would rise again from the dead not crushed, not in pain, but in joy, victorious, triumphal joy that began the new age. We who sit between the now and the not yet until he returns to make all things new. So how does the fact that Christ died the death he didn't deserve so that you might have the exalted life you don't deserve affect how you live? Because if it doesn't, then the answer to Isaiah's question of who has considered this for you is not I. If how we live on a regular basis, I would argue daily, is not somehow affected by the person and work of Christ in some way, shape, or form. Now, let me hit the pause button for just a second because some of you just heard me say something very triumphalistic. What you heard is that your alarm clock is this. 
hallelujah, hallelujah, and you jump out of the bed redeemed and refreshed, ready to face the day, Christus Victor. Conquerors, more than conquerors, right? Oh man, if that were only true. It's not true at our house. Susan hates the morning, and I often get up at four, which is, she says, God forsaken. And so, so that's not, that's not what I just said. So please don't misquote me. Here's what I'm saying. That every day ought to, in some form or fashion, cause us to realize this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that Christ died because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe you're not the way you would love to be. Maybe your spouse is not who you would love them to be. Maybe your children aren't doing what you would love them to do. Maybe the government is not doing what you think it ought to do. Maybe, maybe the pollen is more than you can bear. Maybe, maybe the food was cold at the restaurant. This is not the way it's supposed to be. You may say, that seems trivial, not to Jesus. He died so that it would all matter. Every riven thing, every hair upon your head. And so, how our days ought to be defined is not necessarily triumphalistic victory, but a willingness to continue to cling to the crucified knowing he rose from the dead and that he's coming again and that he will make all things new and that's reason enough to watch the sun go round one more time. That's the sometimes just as good as it gets. Now some days are a little more, hallelujah, hallelujah, right? That was a little Joe Novenson. That's people who want me to sing to y'all. That's all you get, okay? Mark it down. That was it. So what does Isaiah teach us here in these two stanzas, the third and the fourth stanza of this beautiful poem? Which, by the way, let me encourage you to do something. For those of you who are engineers, uh, and, and others, read this thing out loud with your family or somebody and, and just slowly go through the word. Read the whole poem. It starts in, in, in 52.12, right? And, or 13 and goes through 53.12. And so read, just, just get a sense of the whole of it because it's intended to be all one thing. We couldn't, we love you too much to keep you here all day for a seminar in this one poem. Uh, and so, so take the time, this Easter season, what a great thing to do. And maybe just do it daily or, or every other day or something like that and read it out loud and let, it, let, let more than just the interior you hear it. And maybe make some observations if you're, if you're reading it out loud with some other folks and notice its poetry, notice its beauty, notice the the different turns that it takes throughout the poem to communicate the beauty and the personal work of Jesus Christ. But stanzas three and four teach us this, that Jesus chose to suffer and die undeservedly so that we would have eternal peace and healing that we don't deserve. That's what it teaches us. Now here's, here's something good. We get to have... Uh, a little brief meal that points to the truth and the power of all that. 